0: I invite you now, loved ones, to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage we'll consider as we make our way through this majestic book written by the prophet Isaiah. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, and we'll read chapter 3 and 4 this morning as they form one unit together. And chapter 4 is quite short and quite brief in comparison. And so, loved ones, hear now the word of God from Isaiah chapter 3. See now, the Lord, the Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. All supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50 and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and Clever enchanter, I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of my people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will Be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youth, suppress my people. Women, rule over them. O my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the the Lord Almighty. The Lord says the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with their outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and the ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes, the capes and the cloaks, The purses and mirrors and the linen garments and the tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. And now chapter 4, verse 1. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all the Mount Zion and over all the assembly, those assembled there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day, and a refuge, and a hiding place from the storm and rain. So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Well, loved ones, in the year 1939, the British government, in preparation for World War II, which they saw coming, they produced a poster. It was intended to raise the morale of the British public. Uh, The bright red poster had a very simple design. At the very top was the royal crown and below it read, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. Many of us have probably seen this poster or heard those words because it was picked up again not too long ago back in the year 2000 and became a popular response to hardship. Keep calm and carry on. Well, it's a call to stay, stay calm, to stay the course under adversity, under difficult situations, right? It's a call for grit and courage. And it was a very important message for England as they kind of took a deep breath before they plunged into World War II, into the deadliest war that has ever landed here on Earth, killing 56 million soldiers and civilians just think of that so much death so much war now fast forward 83 years to our present moment is that the message that the church today needs to hear is that what we need to hear keep calm and carry on is that the message that christians need to hear in these troubling times now I do think that we need more grit and fortitude, more courage to go forward. Absolutely, that's part of the truth. At the same time, that encouraging message assumes something that is critical. The phrase carry on assumes that we are in the right way and that we simply must carry on in the same way, keep going in the same direction. But, Is that assumption true? Are Christians today in the right way? Is the church simply a victim of gross injustice and evil in the world today? Well, Isaiah's message to Israel here, God's chosen people, God's church in the Old Testament, well, it is revealing to us that this is typically the case that we as God's people are not usually in the right way we can't just keep calm and carry on because God's people are prone to wander astray from the way of the Lord so the queen of England and her message to her people was keep calm and carry on but it seems that the king of Israel through his prophet Isaiah is saying here quite the opposite he's saying fall apart and repent repent. God sent this message to the public of Israel in preparation for the invasion of the Assyrians who were soon to come, who were soon to come and pillage and plunder their cities and their towns, leaving Israel destitute. Now, why would God give such a discouraging message to his people right before that invasion of the Assyrians? Well, it's because they were not in the right, Their rulers were leading them astray. They were turning them from the path of the Lord. And God did not want them to carry on in the same. They were in need of significant change at the very core of their being and existence in their hearts. They needed change. Their hearts had grown cold to their God and their king. And in verse 8, we read that instead of glorifying God in their midst glorifying his presence they were willfully defying god's holy presence and there in the hebrew it literally reads they were defying the eyes of his glory defying the eyes of his glory so god sent them this message because they needed a wake-up call it seems they didn't need simple encouragement to carry on in the same and to stay the course they needed a strong challenge to turn around and come home Come back to the glory of the Lord. Turn from trusting in false idols and false supports and supplies and instead turn to trust in the Lord their God, living before his face and living before the eyes of his glory. And so as we bring Isaiah's message here this morning to bear on the church today, the church in the West, in our culture, we too must realize that we have been weighed and found wanting we have fallen short of the glory of god we are in the red in a sense with a big deficit a shortfall of god's glory just think of this in the aftermath of covid 19 what has happened to the church statistically thousands of churchgoers have stopped worshiping god in the public assembly or the gathering of the saints. People are not going to church, not attending, not worshiping God. According to data collected in 2020 by Barna Group, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. Many houses of worship in the U.S. have had to close their doors to the pandemic and the shutdowns, etc. Now what's worse, church membership in the U.S. has dropped below 50% think of that. Church membership dropped below 50% for the first time in 2020, according to this Gallup data, dating all the way back to 1940. That's when it was back down at 50% in 1940, one year after that famous Keep Calm and Carry On poster was published. And so here we are, COVID-19 and the pandemic has hit us. Is COVID-19 the problem? Is the pandemic the problem? Are the restrictive measures to blame for this lackluster attendance of Christians in church this lack of wanting to give God the glory no not at all they were just catalysts right this whole pandemic was just a nice big excuse for thousands of people to stop worshiping God according to his word and thousands of people grabbed onto that excuse and are sitting at their homes not worshiping God. Carrying on in their lives. Carrying on in the ways that are displeasing to God. And so we need to hear this. The church this, in our culture needs to hear this message from Isaiah today. We too need a wake-up call. And so we're going to examine this text in two parts. And the first part is much longer. First, the shortfall. And then secondly, the branch of the Lord. First, the shortfall. In the first verse, look at it there. In the first verse of our passage of chapter 3, he says, See now, the Lord, the, the Lord Almighty is about to take away from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. Supply and support here are the masculine and feminine forms of the same word in Hebrew, masena, Mashen and it's an idiom. It's an idiom for every support of every kind the Lord is taking away. And so as the rightful king, God was promising a kind of total reconstruction of his people. He was promising to take away everything that had once stabilized their society, their corporate life together. In a sense, we see God here kind of as a father cutting his son off from the buffet line at a restaurant. It's like he's saying, you've had it way too easy. You've had all the food you could ever want. I've given you the best things. But over and over again, you went back to that buffet line and you chose the worst food for yourself. You chose the worst things. So I'm cutting you off. I'm taking it all away. I'm going to let you know what it actually feels like to be hungry. to be in want. I want you to see how good you had it. I want you to see again how I am good and have been good to you. But you won't see that until I take it away from you, until I take away that greasy food that's distracting you and occupying your mind. And so I'm going to take it away, all support and supply. Now, what things does God say he will take away? Well, he speaks about that in the following verses, the basic necessities of life, like bread and water, but also all kinds of leaders and guides in their society. And that that kind of shortage of food and water, plus the lack of worthy, adequate leaders, is a recipe for disaster. It's nothing less than a societal crisis about to take place, a potential breaking point for Israel. And this warning from God was pointing forward to what was going to happen in their history, the Assyrian invasion. And in that state of crisis, Israel would be left destitute. They would become a shadowy form of the glory that they once had, a shadow version of their former glory. In the aftermath of it all, they would scramble to try and lift themselves up out of the ruins, but they would come up short time and time again. We can see that in verses four through six, where God says that at first he was going to replace their leaders with what kind of leaders? Inexperienced children. Oh, that's a disaster waiting to happen, right? Then we read without good and godly leadership that people would turn against each other. A kind of polarization would happen, right? Everyone against each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor, all fighting and bickering. And that's not all. Then the next young generation would lose respect for the older generation, and all sense of honor would be gone. And in their desperation, they would scramble to appoint any Joe Schmo kind of leader based on a ridiculously low standard that's set here. Look at it. That guy has a cloak. He has clothes on his back. He must be a good leader. Let's put him in charge of this heap of ruins. Now, this passage here, this part of it, reminds me of a movie that came out in 2006. It's called Idiocracy. Idiocracy, which literally means rule by idiots. And for the record, I don't recommend that any of you watch the movie because it isn't very good or edifying. And I couldn't even find a single good quote. But the concept of the movie is good for illustration. The movie, it's a satire of American culture. And it tells a story of this guy named Joe Bowers, who's a librarian uh, for the U.S. government, and he takes part of this government hibernation experiment. So he's going to be put into deep sleep, and then they're going to wake him up. But the experiment goes wrong, and Joe wakes up 500 years later. But a lot has changed. Society has undergone a dumbing down by mass commercialization and mindless media overload. And so the general IQ of the whole population has really sunk very low when he wakes up and so Joe wakes up and he finds out that he has become the smartest man alive on the planet and eventually he's thrust into power and authority over the heap of ruins that is left. So in a sense that is what has happened to Israel or what was going to happen God is saying and is what is happening as well to us. What do I mean? I do not mean an intellectual dumbing down, although maybe that's happening too because we are overly saturated with media and entertainment. We are amusing ourselves to death and we take it in so mindlessly. So that might be happening, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is this, is that what is happening in our culture is far worse than a dumbing down of the intellect. We have undergone a dimming down of glory. By casting off the Lord our God. Dimming down of glory. This didn't happen overnight. The dimming down of glory has happened slowly but surely. Little by little, we have compartmentalized the Creator God into the small confines of our private, individual spirituality. We've tried to personalize the Eternal One of glory to fit into our own personal aspirations. And we've gotten used to a version of God that supports our own personal agendas and rarely challenges us on any point. We like to think that God is telling us, day after day, keep calm, carry on. We like to think that God is saying, keep pursuing your own happiness. Go, prosper, live life to the fullness. I'm here to support you if you need me. Newsflash, that is not the voice of the one true God. Friends, the voice that you're hearing that says keep calm and carry on in your own ways is the God that we have created in our own image, not the one true God. Now, what is the result of this dimming down of glory in our culture? Well, by casting off the glorious one, we have cast off the true glory that we ourselves were made for. You can't expect, for example, to plant a citrus tree in the shade that never gets any sun. You can't expect that tree to produce any good fruit. Away from the sun's warmth and its light, it will not produce any fruit. And so too, we cannot expect to grow the fruit of glory, true glory, apart from the warmth, the warm light of God's glory. And so by casting off the Lord our God, By defying his glorious presence, we have degenerated into shadow forms of the glory that God made us to be. And this diagnosis of humanity is exactly what the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans 3, where he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. By saying we have fallen short of the glory of God, he's saying we have not measured up, we have not reached Or arrived at the glory that we were made for it's kind of like those nailed it videos or memes have you ever seen those nailed it right you know I'm talking about when people try to make a copy of a professionally decorated cake that looks beautiful it's just amazingly decorated but then the person an average person does it themselves and it turns out looking like well Something not so beautiful. It's just a mush of, you know, hodgepodge-ness. It's not, not beautiful. And so we sarcastically say, nailed it, right? Oh, that person nailed it when they really did not reach the glory of what they were trying to replicate, the glory of the original. Well, guess what? That's us. That's humanity. It's not funny, though. It's not funny because we are not just a silly little cake That we have messed up. Our falling short of reflecting God's glory is deadly, is dangerous, and it is distressing. Instead of being kingly agents of peace, upholding all that is good, beautiful, and true in God's creation, we have degenerated into arrogant agents of destruction. And Isaiah shows us here in vivid detail how both men and women degenerate into shadow forms of themselves instead of shining in the glory of. The Lord their God. He shows us how men here in this passage are tempted to use their physical strength and their social power for their own self-interest. He shows us how each man turns against one another. Remember he said that? And that leads to oppression, right? Instead of ruling over our own fields what God has put before us, instead of ruling like kings bringing order and peace and stability to what God has put in front of us, we become either tyrants or weaklings, oppressive authoritarians or inexperienced know-it-alls. And this comes out again in verses 6 through 7. Look at the text. When all the individual members of society or of a group end up shifting blame, passing the buck in responsibility to other people, and nobody's willing to take it up for themselves, well, that group is dysfunctional and desperate. Everyone pointing the finger, blaming each other for the ruins, but then at the end of the day, throwing up their own hands and saying, I have no remedy. Don't put me in charge of this heap of ruins. I don't want to take part of this. In Isaiah's day, things were falling apart in Israel, and no one was man enough to say, the buck stops here. I will take the responsibility. No one was found. Yet in verse 15, we find that soon others would fill that vacuum of power, right, by grabbing authority. Look at verse 15, and they would use that authority and power to crush people, grinding the faces of the poor. You see, this is what tends to happen with men. Men, when they lose sight of the glory of God for which they were created, they degenerate either into weak cowards or into oppressive tyrants, those two shadow forms, instead of being kings. Now, how about women? How do women tend to degenerate from the glory of God? Well, Isaiah shows us with vivid imagery in verse 16, saying the women of Zion, they're haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along, swaying their hips with ornaments jingling on their ankles. And so here we learn that women are tempted typically to use their physical beauty and their social charm for their own self-interest to gain power, influence, and prosperity. And according to the Bible, when people dress scantily, whether it's a man or a woman, showing all, lots of skin and flaunting about their physical beauty, it is in a way sacrilegious. Because your body is made in the glorious image of God, it is a glorious beauty that God has given you that you must protect and preserve and flaunting about in public or on social media is taking something that is sacred, the beauty of your body, and making it profane. Such beauty is meant to be preserved, protected, and praised by your future spouse. And so we see, we see how both men and women here degenerate in different ways, in different tendencies. And this happens to us as well as we've dimmed down the glory of God in our own existence by cutting off the Lord from our lives. This is the shortfall that we should be concerned about. And like he did with Israel, sometimes God himself comes in and takes away support and supply in order to teach us a lesson. Because they trampled upon God's glory in the streets with their pride and their apathy, their complete indifference towards him, the Lord their God took away those things that they once relied upon. And this is not vindictive on God's part. This was disciplinary in his love. He wanted them to know what it would be like to be left apart from him so that they would come back to him in the end. He's saying, in a sense, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want your blessings, you need to be with the blessed giver. If you want peace and security, you need the Lord of hosts on your side. If you want joy, you need to be in fellowship with the one who has pleasures at his right hand forevermore. God was warning Israel, saying to them, if you continue to cut me out of your lives, sooner or later you will be cut off from all of my blessings. And God's saying the same thing to us today. For those of you who are parents, you know this very well. Sometimes our kids, they get upset they won't listen to us, and they sometimes sadly say to our face, I don't like you, or I don't love you. Now, what does mom usually say in response to that with fire in her eyes, right? I carried you for nine months. I gave birth to you. I fed you. I changed your dirty diapers. I've done everything for you. If it weren't for me, you'd have nothing, and you'd be an orphan out on the streets. Now, As parents, we understand how dependent our children are upon us, our kids, however, are clueless to how good they have it, and they feel entitled to everyday blessings that come from our hands, clothes, shelter, food, water, not to mention all the entertainment that we give to our kids. And so we get that. We see that clearly, and it irks us that our kids could be so rude and ungrateful for all that we have given them It kills us that our kids are spoiled brats sometimes, filled with entitlement issues. Well, don't you see? God is our father, and we are the spoiled brats. We are the ones who are often so rude and ungrateful to God for what he has provided for us. We are the ones who feel entitled to more, but in reality, we deserve less. We deserve far worse. And so, God takes away support and supply. He takes away our worthless crutches that we're so used to leaning upon. Why? So we can fall into filth and misery and die there? No. God takes it away so that we can fall into his loving embrace. So that we can fall into something that is better. That we can fall into the support and supply that God wants to give us. And that leads us to our last point, the branch of the Lord. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, we see how the Lord responds to the shortfall of his people. He took away all those false supports and supplies because he promised to give them something better. He didn't promise to just return what he had previously taken away. That wouldn't have helped their situation at all. God promised to give them something better, to actually create something new for his people. A beautiful and glorious branch sprouting forth new life. Ray Ortland says of this branch, the branch of the Lord is a metaphor for the Messiah, the branch of Jesse, Right? The son of David, just as a sprout, a twig growing up from the Davidic line. You see, God, he did not wait for his people to do something about the problem to fix themselves. He promised to step up and fix what was broken. He said, in effect, the buck stops here with me god is the archetypal king the great king the greatest leader of all and when he saw his broken humanity and his broken world he didn't say go fix yourselves no god said i will fix their mess god took the initiative and grace to rescue us and to renew us we who are the heap of ruins he claimed for himself i will build them up again through my messiah is what he's declaring In the New Testament, we find the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, he tells us about the Son of God and his willingness to take that responsibility of redeeming us and ruling us. He says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And The author of Hebrews goes on to say, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By his will, his willingness to take it upon himself, to fix us, to mend us. This is good news because Jesus took up that responsibility of our ruined state. We have now been forgiven and made holy through him, we who have trusted in the Lord and the support and supply he has given us through Christ, our Savior. We have been washed clean. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll take the buck for them, and let the blame fall on me. I will lead this ruined people. Not only that, not only has Jesus redeemed us in the past through his life, death, and resurrection, but now also by his Holy Spirit, loved ones, he is remaking us. He's remaking us. He's given us a spirit in order to work that same mentality of willingness, of courage to take responsibility and do something. He's working that into our hearts. The mentality of humility that says, I care more about the group's well-being. I care more about the church's well-being than I do about my own personal preferences, my own reputation. I'm willing to sacrifice my own time, my own energy to help build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm willing not to cast the blame on others, always pointing the finger and saying, who's going to do something about this? I'm willing to do my part, so help me God. Ray Ortland, he says, true revival awakens a new sense of our responsibility to one another, which is contrary to our selfishness. Such sense of responsibility is a revealing indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, loved ones, at the close here, God is calling us to recover, recover our degenerated nobility, to step out of the shadows and back into the light of his glory. Let's step back into his presence in that sense. Let us stir one another up, in holy agreement to serve one another in love, let's take up the responsibility, each of us, for the well-being of our church, the well-being of one another, and let us ask God to strengthen our hearts, to move our hands and feet in accordance with that will of the Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this challenging and yet comforting text which comes from the the passage that we just read from Isaiah chapter 3 and 4. We acknowledge that we have tried to compartmentalize you and put you in a tiny box and we have not lived under the full light of your glory in each moment of our days. We often live in selfish ambition, seeking our own interests. Lord, we ask that you would come and renew us again this morning, that you would attach us like branches to the branch of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we too, as united to Christ by faith and with his Holy Spirit, might produce the fruit of righteousness and holiness, that we might love one another rightly in accordance with your will, that we might shine in this world as a society of the redeemed, where God's glorious presence dwells. Lord, awaken us, revive us by your Spirit through Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.